Dispatch 2. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is going to be the second episode of the Dispatch series. So today we've got, uh, I'd say, not as strong of a lineup as last time, but still uh, some really, really good ones. So first one, and yeah, I finally gave in to the peer pressure from friends and family. I went, or rather, I went to my living room on HBO Max and queued up The Batman by Matt Reeves. And yeah, I loved it. Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest, even if I get some flack from this, but Batman and frankly superheroes in general never really interested me. And Batman especially because, I mean, I like him. I want to like him, but depending on the writer, his characterization was all over the place. But I'm not going to linger too much on that because I don't want to seem like I'm just going with public opinion with this. Um, <laughs> it was more just all the hype around it. I'm like, okay, this can't be that good. But it was. Uh, if any of you follow my Twitter page or my IG, Instagram, you might remember that the first post was that um, screenshot from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Duke just <laughs> stands up in his uh, convertible and he's like, wait, no, we can't stop here. This is bat country. But, yeah, I I honestly really love this one, more so than I thought I would. Um, yeah, most of the situations in most of the scenes in the movie, they were set up in a way that created something I feel is kind of lacking in a lot of superhero movies, at least for me, is that there's some genuine suspense... Suspense? Sorry. I wanted to say tension and suspense. My brain got them mixed up. But, yeah, tension and suspense. Um... Uh, yeah, Batman actually got hurt a couple times. <laughs> There's this angle of, like, police corruption in the department in Gotham that's played up so wonderfully. And there's this sort of sense of isolation that both Batman and Commissioner Gordon feel very, well, very strongly. There's, you know, political intrigue. There's a whole mystery that's spelled out just enough that you can piece it together on your own. But enough is given to you that you can still follow it. I really loved the sort of morbid sense of humor that the Riddler had in this. Um, the music, the cinematography, the sets, the effects were all top notch. They had a nice, they had a nice balance of uh, you know comic book style, but also keeping it grounded and realistic enough. I, I liked that the quote unquote Batmobile in this one was basically just like a souped up muscle car. It wasn't like a you know APC basically. <laughs> Now, onto the bat himself. I actually loved the way Robert Pattinson played him. He played up the sort of he played up the psychology psychological angle of this. He played up the kind of like reclusive, tortured, angsty angle on it. But as I mentioned to a friend of mine, a lot of times when the comics when they try to do that, it just comes off like the Punisher in a silly hat. <laughs> when I read before this that to get into character, he kind of read up on, you know, Kurt Cobain, his life, his psychology. I was really, really confused as to how that worked. And I'm, now that I've seen the movie, I'm like, oh, that's how. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, the funny thing is, though, that ironically, this is one of the few, I don't know, what the plur what's the plural of Batman? Batman? Batmans? I don't know. But he's one of the few incarnations that I'd actually trust to, like, look after a child, basically. <laughs> and, like, given the like, different motivations with, you know, between him and Catwoman. It was a nice contrast, especially with their whole relationship going on. And I won't really say too much more, just because I can't really say more without spoiling anything, but, like, everyone all around, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, 
Andy Serkis is Alfred. Colin Farrell is the Penguin. Totoro is Carmine Falcone. Oh, and especially Paul Dano is the Riddler. Like, I legitimately got chills seeing him when he's, you know, on screen unmasked. So, yeah, I was really, really impressed, and I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10. All right, next up is a film directed by uh, Charlie Kaufman. You might know him best if you've heard of him at all as the writer for uh, Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, This is probably going to be the weirdest and the most artsy of the bunch up today. Um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things is the name of the movie, and it's based off the uh, 2016 novel of the same name by Ian Reid. I I remember watching this during quarantine, and I didn't know what to make of it, but I really do appreciate a lot more now after a second viewing. Uh, Yeah, and again, Kaufman, as I said, wrote those three movies. Um, He's also made the like stop-motion animated film called Anomalisa, and he made his debut in 2008 with Synecdoche, New York. Uh, The late, great Roger Ebert actually said that it was his favorite film of the decade. So I'm mostly just saying this to, you know, give some, you know, credentials for his work, but I'm also saying this so that if you like movies that have a clear structure, a solid story structure, clear answers, um... Yeah, you're, you're probably going to want to skip ahead a few minutes because this film definitely is not for you. This is like David Lynch on acid, basically. So, I mean, the basic surface-level synopsis, there's this couple. Uh, the boyfriend, played by Jesse Plemons, is named Jake. The, girl ha- the girlfriend of a few weeks, um, who's called a number of different names throughout the movie, played by Jesse Buckley. And no, I will not explain here why she's called multiple different names throughout the film, because I'm not entirely sure I understand that reason myself. But they set off to a farmhouse in a more rural area to go have dinner with Jake's parents. And pretty much as soon as the drive begins, we get a sense of Kaufman's sort of absurdist, almost postmodern writing style. We get a sense both from like the woman's inner monologue and from the scene itself where she's actually talking with Jake that... Even though, by her own admission, Jake has done nothing to make her feel uncomfortable, really. That she feels kind of trapped in the relationship, basically, and she doesn't think it's going anywhere, and she doesn't really know what to do. It's also helped by the fact that when they are talking out loud, um, they're kind of talking past each other. Because, I mean, a running thing in the movies Kaufman is involved with, whether he's directed or just written for it, is that humans have a very limited ability to actually understand each other's set of stand, uh, you know, POV, uh, mental uh, standpoint. When they get to the farmhouse, for example, and have dinner with the parents, it is all so, the dialogue is just so incredibly stilted and awkward, but it's done in such a way that it, you can tell it's intentional, uh, especially because the acting is so well done by the whole cast, which includes um, Tony Collette from... Uh, you know, Knives Out, Hereditary, uh, David Thewlis, who's been in a few things. Um, he was in Anomalisa with Kaufman, but some of you might know him best as either um, Ares from the Wonder Woman movies or as uh, Professor Lupin from the Harry Potter movies. Um, yeah, the cinematography, the score, the lighting, the set design, 
It's weird to say, but they all give this sort of anxious and claustrophobic feelings. Even when the characters are outdoors, you feel claustrophobic. And it's pushed to the point where it almost feels like you're trapped in a tiny box just because of the aspect ratio. It's four by three, so it's almost like a perfect square. Uh, as usual with Kaufman's movies, there's a lot of literary discussion. There's a theme of mortality, one of identity crisis. I won't really go into too much detail here. Um, YourMovieSucks.org on YouTube. He actually has a great video where it's his personal interpretation of the movie. Um, just go look up I'm Thinking of Ending Things Analysis YMS, and you should be able to find it pretty easily. Um, I do, again, want to say this is going to be a challenging film, even if you're like me and you like the weird abstract stuff. Uh, for all the critical acclaim this movie has garnered, I have seen people accusing it of being pretentious and self-indulgent. I even... <laughs> I even saw one reviewer uh, stating that for every good moment in this movie, there's 10 where Kaufman is just trying to show what how much of a tortured smart art aleck he is. But it's bizarre and it's so well executed that I can't help but admiring it, even given how, I mean, especially actually given how weird it must have been to film this. So yeah, it's a challenging one, but I'm going to give it a solid 10 out of 10. All right, next up, sadly, a movie that flopped due to a variety of reasons, not the least of which being the high cost, the sort of niche subject matter, and very strong competition. We have Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. It is a historical drama, and it dramatizes the story of the trial of Jacques Legree. Now, it's based on a book which, um, again, because I'm a history nerd, like the source material for The Northman, I have read this, although my memory of that is a lot vaguer just because I uh, read that one in high school instead of college. So basic synopsis is it's the Hundred Years' War between England and France, and there are these two soldiers. On the one hand, we have Jacques Legree, who is a uh, doesn't get past the rank of squire, really, but he was originally training to be a priest, eventually decided that the path to knighthood was more his um, or his cup of tea, basically. And he's kind of well-liked for both his you know, military accomplishments, but also his sort of wit and charm and his intellect. And his friend, who is a lot more martial, a lot more short-tempered, a much more uh, aggressive sort of man, is Jean de Carouge. They are respectively played by Adam Driver and Matt Damon. And they start out as friends. Eventually, the relationship sours for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of it was just Legree being favored by the Count, uh, Count Pierre, the king's cousin, actually. And Carouge felt that a lot of the favors that Legree was getting was coming at his expense. And this is where the duel part comes into effect, because one day, Carouge uh, comes home from Paris after collecting the money he's owed from the king. And his wife, Lady Marguerite, accuses Legree of coming into the chateau that she's staying at uh, on a day she was alone. And, well, again, this is where we get heavy. There's really no other way to say this. Uh, Legree is accused of, la of raping Lady Marguerite. So that's what spurred this whole duel onwards. And, yeah, as the title suggests, I mean, it wasn't technically the last duel, but this was the last time there was a legally sanctioned duel by the king 
for a criminal trial. There were a few others, but they weren't for criminal reasons. Uh, what I found most interesting about the film was its structure. It kind of reminded me, I don't know if anyone's seen the old uh, movie Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. But we have the introduction to get a short idea of what's going on. And then we have the movie presented in three sort of POV segments. We have that of uh, Jean de Carouge. We have one of Jacques Legree. And we have one for Marguerite's perspective on this. Uh, each time the story is shown slightly differently with different events highlighted. Uh, the personalities of all involved are shown differently as well. Uh, Marguerite, for example, is kind of passive in both Legree and Carouge's viewpoints. Uh, Legree for Carouge and Marguerite comes off a bit more of a sycophant, a bit more of a slime ball. Carouge, interestingly enough, in both Legree and Marguerite's viewings, comes off as a lot more brutish and aggressive and vitriolic, very, very short tempered. Uh, you know, his pride is very easily wounded. Um, the script is a little, I don't know if this was scripting, but the acting is kind of hammy at points, but. Everyone performed their parts really well. I mean, whatever their whatever their personalities were supposed to be in that segment, everyone involved was great. And Ben Affleck is Count Pierre. He's flippant, impetuous. He comes off, and he comes between the two. And he has this almost like scumbag charisma, basically. He's a show stealer, honestly, because he's just so charming almost by virtue of the fact he's so self-absorbed. There's a scene where... Uh, Legree is trying to convince Count Pierre to, you know, reward Carouge for something. And Legree admits that, oh, you know, sure, he's got his faults. He's uh, short-tempered and prideful. And then Pierre just starts rattling off these other things like impetuous, disobedient. It's, <laughs> it's, it's arrogant, doesn't listen thing. And then Legree tries to, well, he's also strong and loyal. And then Pierre just goes, yeah, so are my fucking hounds. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he's... He's one of those ones where it's just, he's almost charming because he just does not care about anyone else. Uh, Jodie Comer, actually, as Lady Marguerite, is wonderful. And I actually feel bad that I haven't heard of her before this because she's, most of her stuff is TV roles and it's only been a handful of movies. But she's really great. I mean, she's fairly passive in the first two segments, like I mentioned, but in Marguerite's, she does portray the trauma very wonderfully. She has this like verge of crying look throughout most of the last segment of the movie because in addition to the fact that in this one, her husband is shown as not being very, very sympathetic at all. It was more just the fact that, you know, it was his wife given the, you know, viewpoints at the time. And like even her mother-in-law, some of her personal friends, you know, women her age, they either think she's lying or that she's simply making trouble. And, Given the weird ideas that people in medieval Europe had about sex at the time, the courtroom scene is particularly uncomfortable. Um, I would say that the main complaint with the movie is Legree's segment. Because, I mean, if it's supposed to be from his perspective, and it comes as a bit of a weirdness to me. It's weird to me that Legree's... He comes off as an even bigger scumbag than he does in Caruso's segment. I mean... He's sent to go collect up, you know, overdue rent and taxes from Pierre's vassals. And he more blatantly strong-arms some of them who are in debt. He treats... He's far more flippant with Carouge. And the scene... I mean, spoiler warning for the movie. He does go to the Chateau in both his segment and Marguerite's. It's just that in his one... I think what they were aiming for was that 
uh, Legree was imagining in this as some sort of like, uh, if anyone has not heard of the phrase courtly love, it was an old literary genre in France at the time. I think he's kind of imagining it as that sort of um, situation. Um, basically, in his mind, it's basically just an affair, and she's just sort of like putting up a front of a token protest, basically. She doesn't have any actual intention of saying no. It's just that she's doing that just to, out of respect for her husband, basically. But it doesn't really come off that way as an outside observer. It's it's not as unpleasant to watch as it is in Marguerite's segment, but it's still very, very creepy, especially given the lead-up. It doesn't seem so much different from her perspective, and it doesn't really make him more sympathetic at all. And given Marguerite's perspective on this, I will say this just because I have a friend who... I've kind of just given her the courtesy of just letting her know if there's a scene like this in any movie. The the scene of the rape in Marguerite's segment herself is... I mean, it's still very, very unpleasant, but it's, it is it is as tasteful as something like that could possibly be when it's being depicted. There's no, there's no nudity. They're not trying to, like, shock the audience with, like, shaky camera work or creepy music or stuff like that. Um, you don't really see... There's basically no nudity. You don't really see any skin other than her head, hands, and a bit of her legs. And it's mostly... And the violence is mostly just other than the act itself, it's also just, you know, like shoving her around, pinning her down, all the non-diegetic sound cuts out. And it's, it's solely upsetting just because of what that scene is supposed to be. And because of uh, driver and Comer's acting ability. So I, it's still an unpleasant thing to watch. So if that's going to be a bit of a problem for you, just be warned. Uh, you can skip ahead a minute and it'll be over. So, yeah, overall a handful of failings, but it's a great concept and a very well-executed movie, other than, as I mentioned, those failings and some of the um, battle scenes get a little repetitive. So, I guess an 8 out of 10 for this one. That sounds about right. Alright, next up we have Halloween Kills, the sequel to the 2018 Halloween, which... Okay, uh, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I really wish that, you know, when reboots like this happen, that they would be a little more uh, consistent with the naming, because between the original continuity, Rob Zombie, and these ones, we now have uh, three Halloweens and two Halloween 2s. And one of those ones that's just called Halloween is also technically a Halloween 2. But whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, this was a bit of a letdown for me, honestly, and I'm like a diehard Halloween fanboy. It wasn't terrible. I don't get why everyone seemed to be so knee-jerk hate hateful of it. It's not a travesty, as some people say. But I suppose it's a little not surprising, given the fact that the 2018 Halloween set the bar so high. I mean, as I said, that one captured what I loved about both The Carpenter and the one, and the one thing that I liked about the Rob Zombie movies is that they had that genuine suspense, that characterization, but they still had very, very brutal and creative kills that were shot very well. So, um, obviously, if you haven't seen the 2018 Halloween spoilers for this, um, the end of that movie, Michael tracks Laurie down to her little family compound in the woods. 
and he gets trapped in the basement. And once they get everyone out, they burn the house down around him to try and kill him once and for all. So the film opens, like, it's the same night. Uh, just like the original Halloween 2, it's continuing, like, right after the events of the first one. So the film opens with Laurie and her family speeding to the hospital to get their wounds looked at. And unfortunately, a fire truck is speeding back towards their house, not knowing exactly what happened. So they show up trying to put the fire out. Michael busts out of the basement in this, like, awesome sequence and just continues his rampage through Haddonfield. And as I said, I'm a great, I'm a big Halloween fanboy, so I just want to get on to some positives before we get to the failings. Um, they couldn't get the original guy who played uh, Tommy Doyle back when he was a kid, but we have the characters of grown-up Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace, the little kids uh, Laurie was babysitting in the first one. Uh, Lindsay is played by the same actress who played Lindsay as a little girl. Uh, Dr. Loomis's assistant, Miss Chambers, uh, former Sheriff Lee Brackett, are also played by their original actors. All that's just nice as a nice little like nod to the fandom. Uh, there's a whole scene where when they find out Michael's still alive and currently around, there's basically, for lack of a better terms, a lynch mob that ends up forming. Uh, it did, in a good way, remind me of Halloween 4, because I thought that was a nice little... It, that's... I don't think it's too unrealistic for this kind of situation. I imagine a small town like this might feel the need to, you know, take matters into his own hands. Um, some of the acting and some of the individual scenes felt cheesy, but it was a it was a good idea, at least. And because this is probably why the most of a lot of people are watching this, the gore effects are great, and the kills are generally very creative and brutal, although... I won't say which one, but there's one that I kind of found a little unintentionally funny. <laughs> but because perhaps, like, onto the negatives at this point, at this point in the story, similar to the original Halloween 2, this killing spree continues on the very, very same night as the movie right before it. So because everyone knows that Michael is out and about now, a lot of the suspense is kind of lost. And, yeah, a lot of the lead-up to the kills are a bit more cliched than in the first one. There's this really unnecessary subplot where the night Michael was arrested, like back in the 70s, um, there was a bit of friendly fire, and one of the cops is still around and coping with the guild because, you know, he killed another officer in the process. Um, it really didn't contribute much to the story, honestly. But, again, I don't know how much of this is just avoidable and how much is unavoidable, how much of it is just a scripting issue. I don't know. I'm I'm actually going to be a little on the optimist side in here and give this a 7 out of 10, because, well, as YMS would put it, it's closer to an 8 than a 6. Let's just put it that way. And now we're on, we are on to Free Guy, directed by Sean Levy. Levi, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm honestly sorry. But this came as a little word-of-mouth recommendation from some coworkers. Um... Uh, it's a little, I guess you'd call it sci-fi comedy, given the elements. Uh, stars Ryan Reynolds, uh, funnily enough, Jodie Comer as well, which I didn't even know until I looked at the cast list. Uh, Taika Waititi is in this. Some of you might remember him from Jojo Rabbit, What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, he directed Thor Ragnarok and had a cameo in it. Um, and I don't watch Stranger Things. I haven't watched it yet but apparently one of the main guys in it is also on that show. 
so any of you that are fans of it might recognize him. So the basic synopsis here is that there's this, um, I guess you'd say it's almost like an online MMO version of Grand Theft Auto called Free City. And we have Ryan Reynolds' character, Guy, who is a bank teller skin NPC, basically. Like, he's in the game, and he doesn't know that it's a game universe. Uh, so, basically, you just run around the city as a player, do missions. Mostly involves combat, heists, and whatnot. And what distinguishes NPCs in-universe at a glance is that they have distinct skins that players can't equip. So you've got a cop, you've got... Uh, the old lady who's looking for her lost cats. You have guy who's a bank teller, like I mentioned. And this is the bigger part, is that the players all wear, their avatars all have sunglasses on them. And apparently in-game, when you put those on, it acts as a heads-up display. And it lets you find missions, interactive items, etc. Guy, one day, for reasons I will not say here, he starts to, his code starts to mutate, basically, and he becomes kind of self-aware. And he stops one of the robbers at his bank, takes the glasses, puts them on, and eventually becomes completely independent of what you would think is his programming. And this is where it goes beyond just being a good comedy for me and starts being a good movie, is that there's a B-plot that intersects with this. And it's the real world, and there's a pair of indie game designers that are secretly trying to prove that the game company who made Free City, uh, one of them actually works for the company, is secretly still using their code after some complicated buyout. They were using for a different game entirely. Uh, Taika Waititi actually plays the CEO named Antoine. Uh, and he's just, like, completely chewing the scenery with his, like, narcissistic man-child persona of his. Uh, he's kind of like Count Bier. It's like Count Bier in Last Duel, only it's, like, turned up to 11, basically. I, I explained to a friend of mine that his character is so entertaining just because it's simply by virtue of how much that you would want to punch this guy if you worked for him in real life. He's one of those characters, basically. And this was also funny for me is that there's a fun little bit of humor at the expense of, um, you know, the way people act in games when they're not dealing with, when they're dealing with NPCs because they know they're not, you know, real. Um, guy, when he becomes independent, it basically goes viral because, you know, a lot of people don't know he's an NPC. They think he's just some hacker that somehow managed to get, like, a skin that isn't normally available to players. And he's basically just going around being friendly to everyone, leveling up by doing a pacifist run, basically. And that's funny to me that everyone's so freaked out about that, because I will admit that sometimes playing, you know, Elder Scrolls Skyrim or any of the Saints Row games, sometimes I'd get bored and I'd just start randomly attacking the NPCs just to see if I could, you know, survive the onslaught that would come as a result of it. So seeing that sort of parodied added a nice bit of depth to something that as I said, already stood on its own two feet as a good comedy. And that's really the best part of it. And the whole, I mean, this thing managed to do a lot of things I don't expect from a lot of comedies, basically. I mean, I'm kind of, a, I mean, I'm always hesitant to watch a comedy just because if it falls flat, it's not even 
Like, I can't even enjoy a failed comedy is so bad it's good because at that point it's just painful. But it managed to be funny. It managed to have some depth. It managed to be really, really wholesome, frankly. And it had a really... I always complain about like badly done romance subplots, but this one was great, honestly, just the way it concluded. It lived up to all the hype my coworkers gave, and for a comedy, frankly, that's, as I said, really hard for me. So yeah, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 for all of that. That's the last for today. Uh, so join us next time, whenever that is. If uh, next time ends up being another Dispatch episode, we'll be discussing uh, the 2022 adaptation of death on the nile uh we'll be going over nick cage's latest project the unbearable weight of massive talent we'll be going over uh pieces of a woman the remake of nightmare alley and guillermo de toro's antlers and if next time ends up being the full official episode well i'm happy to say that we will in fact be paying a visit to feudal japan for a film called kumano sujo meaning spiderweb castle in its native japanese but outside of Japan, it's more well-known as Throne of Blood, Akira Kurosawa's adaptation of Macbeth. So anyway, signing off, take care, enjoy the next movie you see. Bye.